morning, everybody. Man, we're packed up today. Let's go 9 a.m. Y'all took it seriously today. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, we have an 11 a.m. as well. If you're, if you're like, man, I'm kind of claustrophobic and I wish I would have slept in. You won't believe the 11 a.m. It's amazing. Uh, it's awesome. All right. Good to see you guys this morning. If you're new here, uh, my name is Joshua. I'm the pastor here at Ethos HV and uh, excited and honored. Uh, I really mean that, honored that you chose to uh, spend your time with us you know, this morning. Uh, you'll soon find out we're nothing special, but um, we love Jesus or we try to and I'm glad you guys are here. So we are kicking off a new series today and uh, you guys can't contain your excitement about it and I can feel it. It's palpable in this room right now. What's the new series gonna be? Look at all of you on the edge of your seat waiting for me to end this joke. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm really pumped about this new series and today is gonna be part one of two parts of like just giving vision for the new series. So this week I'm gonna give some vision for the new series and then next week Gentry's gonna give some more vision for the new series, all right? So um, buckle up, this whole day is to help you know what to expect on a big picture, high level kind of thing, okay? Um, So you guys ready? Can we get a collective drum roll? I was wondering how many would pat versus do the tongue roll. So we're patting instead of that. All right, Uh, the new series title is called Come and Stay. (laughs) I know, balloons fall from the rapture, glitter everywhere from the heavens. Here we go. Um, That's a joke if you get it. Anyway, um, yeah, so it's called Come and Stay, and it's rooted in John chapter 15. Uh, I'm going to elaborate a lot on that later, but here's a a few tags. You're going to hear Gentry or I or, or someone else that teaches saying every week, In a culture of come and go, of just come and go, we're trying to say yes to Jesus' invitation to come and stay, to not be a people that come and go out of the presence of God, but people that come and stay in his presence at all times. And uh, we'll dig into that. But to be a church, catch this, that lives life with God and from God as well as for God, if any of you grew up like I did, I'm the most comfortable with life for God. I'm not as comfortable with life with God or living from God, him being the true source of life through which I live and breathe and speak and act. And so that's what we're gonna try to explore. And we've talked a lot about the rhythms of Jesus lately. And this series is just gonna continue stealing from his playbook. Last week, I I talked on this enough so I don't have to keep elaborating, but I believe that Jesus' fuel to his ministry that was really demanding was actually just solitude with the Lord. That Jesus prioritized stillness, being still in the presence of God, and that being still in the presence of God for prolonged periods of time is one of the primary things that fueled him to do the ministry that he did. And this is all out of John chapter 15. I'm gonna read the first four verses where Jesus says this, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. 
You are the branches, and whoever abides in me and I, am him, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so you see the invitation, remain in me. That word abide, not quite a 2023 buzzword that we're using a lot of times with our friends, you know, over dinner, you know, you've been abiding lately. But just to make it simple for you, it means to remain, to stay. Pretty simple, difficult, but simple. Just stay in my presence. And so I wanna talk about what we're going after as a church family, what it's gonna look like for us to be a people that just come to the presence of God and then have the audacity to just stay there. But before I give vision to being a people that grow comfortable living and existing in the presence of God, I actually wanna start today's conversation by addressing three hurdles that are gonna immediately be in your way with this series. If you've been here for any amount of time, you already know that we are gonna create space in this building to participate in this series. That I'm not just gonna get up here and talk to you for an hour and then say, hey, I'll see you next week. That we're actually gonna be pausing a lot in this space to welcome the presence of God, to learn how to explore the presence of God. And when we do that, and when we encourage you to go out and do this in your Monday through Saturday life, there's some hurdles you will immediately be faced with. And if you're not familiar with them, I think you're gonna take it on as an identity issue, as a personality trait issue. Oh, I guess this just isn't my thing. I don't have the personality. I don't have the skill set. It's just not how I'm wired, but I disagree. I actually think there's some hurdles that you've picked up from culture, not even from you, but it feels personal if you don't know how to name where it's coming from. If this feels vague, I'm about to make it all make a lot of sense. So before we get into how are we gonna explore abiding in God's presence, remaining in God's presence, I wanna first address some hurdles that are gonna be in all of our way. Does that make sense? You guys ready? You ready to hear about some obstacles? Okay, so the first hurdle that is in the way of just existing in the presence of God, being still in God's presence, is this word productivity. All right? You gotta know this about yourself. If you're taking notes, take notes. Be productive. <laughs> um, kidding. <laughs> um, sorry. So anyway, about the laugh afterward. I'm sorry about all of it. Um, all right. So the pressure of productivity is on your life individually. This is a fact about you, whether you know it or not. You may hear the voice of productivity and be able to call it out, or maybe you don't even know it's a voice in your life, but it is. The pressure to be productive is on the individual. So this isn't like, you know, back when the Model T was going down. And that was still a productive culture, you know what I mean? But there were like factories and you clocked in and you did your work and then you clocked out and then you went home and work was clearly over. But like in the 50s, we started having things like offices. Yeah, totally. They are so, how dumb is an office? Um, and in the 2020s, we started working remote like crazy. And what came with that? The culture of productivity became individualized. It became not quite as clean. Hey, you start now, you end now. I mean, that's the trick of a salary. Everyone wants a salary. What you don't realize is there's no hours that come with a salary. It's just all the hours. It's up to you. 
It's just get it done whenever you get it done. The sooner the better, right? And so what comes with that? Like you heard the phrase, less is more, but we're done with that. You know what's even more true in the American context? More is more, right? Like there's always more. You can always get more done. Does anyone else feel that pressure? Even if you're type A, you got the checklist and you check every box. If you're that type of personality, you're prone to get done with the list and then ask, what else is there? Should I not be finding more and more things to do? And what can come with the culture of individualism that prides itself in being productive is this instinctive need. It feels like it's a part of who you are. I need to get more done. I'm not doing enough. I could be doing more. So when God invites us, let's just suppose that God longs for you to come into his presence and to be marked by things like stillness, attentiveness, silence, letting go of the pressure to do and accomplish, guess what happens in that still, quiet place? You begin to feel uncomfortable. You know, it feels counterintuitive. I'm just sitting here, now what? You, that, you sit there. Okay, yeah, but then what? You sit. Then what? You know? <laughs> like, none of us would ever scream like that, but you feel it in your bones. Like, this can't be it. This feels counterintuitive just to be still and, and that be enough. It feels counterproductive, and to be counterproductive feels like an enemy. And immediately, and for whatever reason, we tell ourselves we want to press the evacuate button. Like, let's eject on this exercise. And here's what I'm telling you. When you feel that way, I'm letting you know I don't think it's because you're not good at it or because you're not born for it or you're not designed that way. I would argue that culture has made you think and process this way because the scriptures, they don't give us like an earn it theology. When they speak of prayer, it's not this white knuckled invitation in fact, Jesus, when he's answering the disciples' questions, like, hey, teach us how to pray, he actually says, hey, refrain from being like the Gentiles who rest on their quantity of words or their repetition or saying it exactly right to, give God's, to get God's attention. Has anyone ever felt like that in prayer? Like, even in prayer, I gotta earn it? It's like, no, it's by grace, Prayer is not the place to bring a productive spirit. In John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine. My father's the vine dresser, aka we're the ones that do the work. You just be here. The imperative is not, hey, if you're gonna come pray, you better be ready to work. Get some stuff done. Let's make this good. I want you to leave confident that you're good at praying. No, the invitation is come to me. Remain in me, be in my presence, and consequently, without you having your hands on the control of it, consequently, being in my presence, you will produce what? Fruit. The outcome is in the hands of the Father. The invitation is that we come into the presence of God and we stay there. 
really hard for our Western American minds. Right now, this feels so vague. To me, even, and I've been thinking about this for two months, but we're gonna do it together. All right, so one, you have to be aware of the productive culture you live in and how that infiltrates your prayer life and just the prospect of sitting still and being attentive. The productive culture you're in is gonna war against that. Number two, we're overstimulated. Man, I've been on my iPhone soapbox for like a year, so I ain't about to, but I am gonna just give you a little, little something, little, okay? So, thank you. Um, so, your brain releases dopamine, right? And dopamine is the I gotta do it again chemical. So if you're starving, you eat a bunch of good food, dopamine. That felt so good. And your brain's like, man, we gotta eat again. And eating's how you stay alive. So dopamine's helpful. If you're having sex within covenant, you release dopamine when you have sex. And in the right context, what a gift. Because if you're married, you know this. Sex isn't just a physical thing, it's an emotional thing, it's a mental thing, it's a place of deep connectedness. So what a gift it is to have dopamine release that makes our brains wanna do it over and over again. And within a marriage, that can really benefit the intimacy of a husband and a wife, which can really help them parent and work together as one. Like, what a gift dopamine really can be. It's on your side when you're making good decisions. But the same is true for negative things that make you release dopamine, right? Your brain's still gonna do the same thing. I wanna do that again. For example, cocaine. Been there, done it, man, I ain't above it. I was like 20, but you do cocaine, you wanna do it again. Is that TMI? I don't know, love you, let's be vulnerable. Show me grace, 12 years ago, okay? Promise. Uh, (laughs) If you gamble, if you get on Instagram, you guys know. You release that dopamine and you wanna do it again and again and again. Okay, so here is the problem. Your phone is a dopamine device. There are free apps that cause your brain to release dopamine, aka they are addictive, and they train your brain, this is what rewards me. So consequently, the average person when their phone is close by can focus on a single task for 40 seconds at a time before their brain needs a distraction that is rooted in being overstimulated So your phone pings, notification, you check the notification, dopamine hit, boom, okay, you're good. Okay, go be still for 40 seconds. Come back to it when you need to. So here's what this means. Your brain has a problem with silence and focus. It cannot get the reward that you've trained it to receive through being being distracted and opening up another device. So it means that it sees boredom and space as a conflict that needs to be resolved versus the solution. So whenever there's this invitation from God to be still and know that I'm God, you sit still and your brain is prone to have a problem with the solution. That's kind of the threat, really sneaky stuff here. So we look at the gospel. We know that Jesus maintains peace in the midst of pressure, joy in the midst of persecution, a servant heart amongst his enemies. And he tells us when you pray, go to your room, shut the door. No one's gonna see you. And your father who sees you in secret, he will reward you. And yet, when we get to the inner closet, when we sit still, we try to open up our minds, focus on the Lord. How rewarding does it really feel? Does anyone else have this tension? Like your experience with prayer is not the way that Josh talks about it on Sundays. 
you read the blog, you read the book, that you gotta read this book and you read it and you went and tried to pray and you're like, I don't know what people are talking about. This is hard. Do you ever get into your prayer closet and start praying and you've got like eight good seconds of focused prayer before your brain goes and just scatters everywhere? I'm gonna pray for this, 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 this. And by the end of it, you're just exhausted. It's interesting how even the reality of having a productive culture and an overstimulated culture, even within the confines of prayer, it can be a threat. Let's say you're in prayer, but what are you bringing with you? Paul says, pray without ceasing. Well, you're bringing your productivity and overstimulated self going, okay, pray without ceasing. <gasps> you know, and you're like, man, I'm exhausted. You're overstimulated, so you're praying for your mom, your teacher, for this country, that country, for this neighbor, that neighbor, for your car, for your dog. You're like, I don't even know what's going on, Lord. Help me. Like, this is too much. Father who sees me in secret will reward me, man. Is the reward exhaustion and confusion? And I'm not sure what that just was. Anybody else in your prayer life feel this way? Man, let me speak life over you. That may not actually be your personality's fault. You may be all right. We may just live in a culture that puts a little too much pressure on being productive all the time, human doings versus human beings, as I've heard it said. You may live in a world where your brain is overstimulated and it's gonna need some training to refocus. But if you're not aware of it and you sit and pray, you won't be able to assess things like, oh shoot, I was supposed to go work out. I, I, I'll do this later. Oh, I know I'm supposed to be praying, but like, I gotta run this errand real quick. And if you don't know what's happening there, no, 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 your brain just doesn't like stillness. All those things can get done 20 minutes from now but your body just needs to move. That's called like an itch. That's called addiction. Okay, hands up. All right. So one more, one more hurdle. I also wanna name something uh, that we all like know of, but don't give enough credit to, and that's just the enemy himself. And I, let's just challenge each other right here. Let's challenge me too. Let's all just feel challenged by this. The Bible believes in Satan as much as it believes in Jesus. And I, look, man, yeah, I definitely get confused on how it all works, spiritual forces, but like, I mean, Paul in Ephesians 6, we don't battle flesh and blood. There's like a, a legit war in the heavenly realms. I mean, go to Matthew 4. Who is Jesus having one-on-one -on -one combat with? Satan. And here's what I believe. The work of the enemy... Let's just reduce his job. The work of the enemy is to prevent the work of God in your life. And yeah, all right. Now y'all start amening and I will get off this stool. <laughs> hey, I grew up in a Baptist church. Y'all ain't never heard amens in this space the way I grew up hearing it. I get revved up for real. <laughs> I just start my sermon over. You know what? Let me say all that again. Uh, but you know, we, we say there's like this phrase, like the devil's in the details, Let's just stop assuming the devil is neutral in our prayer lives. We'd all be better for it. God, I'm done assuming the devil is neutral in my pursuit of you. I'm actually gonna assume he is proactively against my intimacy with the Father. And so if we struggle with this productive spirit, this overstimulated spirit, we can tap into the dopamine hits, we can tap into the brain science of it, but let's also tap into the, the enemy 
the last thing he wants for you is to experience a peace that transcends understanding that can be found in the silence and the solitude and the stillness of the presence of God. What if it's not just a cultural thing? What if there really are spirits of evil warring against the American church to prevent it from being a praying church because we simply don't have the patience and the focus? Richard Foster in 1978 said, in contemporary society, this is 40 years ago, in contemporary society, our adversary, the devil, majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will be satisfied. That was 40 years ago. Richard Foster didn't even have TikTok when he said that. Isn't that crazy? If he can keep us preoccupied with muchness and manyness, he will be satisfied. So I wanted to name these three hurdles on the front end because we're about to spend our whole fall in this series. And you will feel these hurdles every day, is my guess. Every time you attempt to be still in the presence of God, to listen for the presence of God, to focus on the presence of God, you will feel your productive, stimulated self struggling, resisting this space. Now, all three the enemy, overstimulation, productivity can be overcome. I am fully confident. Y'all already know I watched a bunch of YouTube this week, a bunch of TED Talks about focus and mindfulness and concentration. I'm gonna give you an exercise at the end of this teaching where a guy said within eight days, he watched his focus and his attention span go up through some simple, simple practices with his technology. So all is not lost. All right, so let's move into what we're going after. What are we going after? The hurdles are in the way of What? I'm about to introduce a subject that I know of, but I'm not an expert in, and we're just gonna learn together. But write down contemplative prayer. If I had to put a name on what we're really gonna try to go in, it's, it's this version of prayer marked by presence, marked by stillness called contemplative prayer. And a book that I've used a lot in the past couple of weeks came recommended by someone on our pastoral team. It's written by Pete Gregg. It's called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People a.k.a. tailor-made for Joshua Soloway. Anything says a simple guide for normal people, I'm like, that was written to me. That's me. I am simple. I am normal. Some would disagree. All right, so here are some ways. Instead of giving you like, here's a definition of contemplative prayer, I'm just gonna give you some quotes. Teresa of Avila said this, contemplative prayer is, quote, the prayer of quiet. You're about to feel some Eastern language. Be prepared to not fully understand what I'm reading, okay? An intimate sharing between friends. Author and teacher David Banner described it as this, wordless, trusting, openness to the God who dwells at the center of our being and the center of our world. Richard Foster calls it a collective attentiveness to God. This type of prayer is consumed with God's loving presence. That's its focus. It is consumed with the loving presence of God. It's mostly a quiet, wordless meditation on Christ and enjoying the presence of Christ without saying or doing anything. The hurdles I told you about, you're already feeling those hurdles and you ain't even praying yet. 
I said wordless, and you're like, okay, well, don't know what that is. <laughs> King David says this, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Try to hear that prayer. Picture that prayer. Picture waiting on the Lord in silence. What comes with that kind of a prayer? When you think about Jesus praying and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, surely you don't picture a Jesus for 40 straight days rolling through this scroll of prayer requests. Surely there had to just be a Jesus, the Son, enjoying and sitting in the presence of the Father. I'm gonna give a little forecast on what this can look like. And again, this is vision. This is we're headed this direction. You don't have to fully understand, comprehend, or even explain what I'm describing right now. We're about to do this as a church family. Prayerfully, God's gonna join us and we're gonna embody this. So there's typically like three stages used to describe what this prayer can like feel like and how you can experience it. I'm just gonna briefly talk through them, okay? So the first stage of contemplative prayer a prayer driven by presence, is the word meditation. It's this me and God stage. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the one who meditates on the law of God day and night. This is where you fix your thoughts on a picture or an object or most frequently a phrase from the Bible and you give them your entire focus. So if you've got a scripture you're meditating on, that's the only thing you're meditating on start to finish for an extended period of time. And as you meditate, you have distractions arise, but you don't get frustrated at the distractions. You don't dismiss them, and you also don't pray about them. You just let them exist, but you keep your mind focused on the holy scripture that you are meditating on. And as time goes on, God begins moving. And here is a crucial detail about the first stage called meditation. Tattoo this on your brain. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Y'all, we know this about so many practices in life. For example, a bike, right? Like, the more you do it shooting a basketball. But when it comes to spiritual practices, if you're like me, you're more, more prone to take it personally when you struggle. It's an indictment on your character. It's an indictment on who you are before God. It's not true. What if the first four months of practicing this prayer is God just untangling our hearts and minds for a while? But I really trust the more we try to pray this way, the better we get at it. So first is meditation. Second stage, contemplation. This is where you move from me and God to God and me. It's same words, just flip the order. As you become more aware of the presence of God, you'll notice God taking center stage in your heart and mind. Early on, this type of prayer will be marked by like, it feels like work and focus, but in this second stage, it's a little bit less work. You begin to just kind of naturally understand that God is here and he's actually guiding this time. Words become less and less necessary as you're just in his presence and his presence is just leading the time because he has control. The third stage is called communion, which is just marked by simply God himself. This is the moment where you're so absorbed in God's reality that you sort of forget you're there. If you're like me, you hear that and you're like, okay, all right. You just forget you exist, huh? Cool. 
But this really helped me. In the book, Pete mentions this. My friend Pete that I don't know, but I'll just first name him like that. Yeah, Pete talks about it. Have you ever been watching a movie and gotten so lost in it that you forget you're watching a movie until the credits roll and you're like, whoa, that was a whole experience. Or maybe you went to the Taylor Swift, one of the seven concerts at Bridgestone, I'm assuming, when they had a lot of them, and she was out there for seven hours and you just got so lost in the experience. You ever been so lost in an experience you forgot you were there watching it? Like sometimes I'll be watching a show and I'll be like, it's so crazy that they're acting. I totally forgot they were acting. That five minutes before this scene, they were like drinking coffee, going over their script and they just started doing something because you got lost in it. There can be moments in life like this where you get lost, caught up in it, forget that you're existing in it. It's just sort of happening and those are merely shadows of what can be available to you in your prayer life. Does that not sound pretty nice? To get so lost with the pure, loving, and holy God that you forget you're praying, you just are in his presence. Almost just observing, experiencing, receiving the hand and the movement of God without any effort at all. Even as I utter these words, I feel the distance between my own lived experience and what I'm describing right now. I have a few moments I can tap into where I've experienced something like this, but they're few and far between. But I speak hope over this room, trust in this room. I think this is on the table for every single one of us. A true and meaningful and regular encounter with the loving presence of God over our life. Why are we exploring this way of praying? Prayer didn't start in the West. Americans didn't invent prayer. Everyone's like, no, we knew that. We knew that. But so often we pray like Americans. We know prayer didn't start here, but often what is informing our prayer is American culture. But we inherited our prayer life from God himself and from a lot of amazing people in the East. This facet of prayer would have been deeply understood by the likes of Jesus Peter, Paul, John. There's a story in Acts where Peter's just praying and he gets a vision and it's a vision from the Lord declaring that the Gentiles can receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's given by the Holy Spirit in a time of contemplative prayer. There's moments where Paul feels the Spirit telling him which way to go on his missionary journey. The book of Revelation is just this meta moment where John gets a vision from the Lord. These people were comfortable sitting in the presence of God. And at times the Spirit would supernaturally give visions from heaven in that place of prayer. Think about Acts 1. Don't go anywhere until my spirits come. Sit in this room and anticipate the Spirit of God. I mean, maybe they just repeated themselves a million times. Come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. Maybe they did that, but my gut is they probably just sat there like in expectancy, God. We're not going until we've experienced your presence. Now, to be clear, this type of prayer that we're gonna begin exploring is most certainly not the only way to pray. Some of the ways you've been praying your whole life are holy, beautiful, wonderful ways of praying The scriptures tell us to make our request be made known, to intercede on behalf of others. What we are highlighting in this series is simply an underdeveloped and potentially overlooked aspect of prayer that should absolutely be a part of your prayer tool belt, if you will. Does that make sense? All right. In all of this, this series is rooted in a tremendous hope in Christ himself. 
We believe there's so much hope in Christ that our soul is longing for more of Christ. That in Christ, there really is freedom. And there really is life and life abundant. That there is a version of you walking with Jesus that is actually experiencing for yourself the joy of the Lord, the supernatural presence of your creator in your life. It's on the table, and this is all because of Christ. I think about someone like Mother Teresa, who spent her life with the poorest of the poor, living in obscurity. Contemplative prayer was one of her main weapons in the kingdom, sitting, soaking in the presence of God. John 15 explains that Jesus is the vine, that the Father is the vine dresser. The promise of scripture, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. You come to my presence, I'll do the rest of the work. And so as we do this, as we launch into this series, let's not rush. Let's not assess this series in the next month. Let's not assess, period. I wanna encourage this church family to be a church that simply shows up with a here I am posture and there's no pressure on the outcomes. What if we need 12 weeks of trying this thing for it to, be, for it to even start making sense to us? Let's be the people that go, we're, we're down for that. Like collectively, if the first eight weeks, the first 10 weeks of this continues to feel foreign, continues to feel weird, I keep feeling distracted, I keep feeling busy, like let's be the people that go, God, I'm gonna keep showing up. I'm gonna keep trying this. I'm gonna trust that maybe there is a version of prayer and a life in prayer that I'm not as familiar with, but that you're gonna teach me over time. Does that make sense? So all of us for the rest of this series, let's just turn off that productive mind that needs it to feel a certain way or meet a certain expectation, but instead coming in here open-handed, Lord, if you're willing to teach, we're willing to learn with no pressure on timeline, no pressure on outcomes. If there is a version of prayer, God, in front of me where you feel more alive and more present, I want it and I'm not rushing you. Teach me, Lord. I'm not assuming I'm an expert. I'm assuming you have things to teach me. Okay, so next week, we're gonna expound a little bit more on this series. Gentry's gonna give a little more color. We're adding a second passage to this series and it's gonna give our roadmap for what every single Sunday is gonna look like. We're gonna give you a reading plan for Monday through Friday to help aid you if you want that. Um, we're really excited. We think it's a lot on the table. But here's a challenge for you. We gotta start the detox. Otherwise, this is just gonna be really hard. All right, so if you wanna try to make this series and approaching God in this type of prayer easier on yourself, here's what I learned from my TED Talk, all right? This guy did a 14-day challenge. I'm gonna give you the easy version of what he said. Every night, he had a technology ritual. So there was a time of night where his phone went completely away every single night. So at 8 p.m. for him, he was like, no more phone the rest of the night. The thing that he also did that I'm not gonna include, but I do want you to hear it, but I'm not including it is, he limited his screen time to 30 minutes per day. Phone calls, GPS, everything included. Let's all be honest, that's hefty, all right? <laughs> that's, because I, I don't know about you guys, but I spend at least 40 minutes on the Bible app alone. <laughs> um, so I'm like, this guy's not even Christian. Uh, no. 
uh, Bible much. So uh, I, I just keep, every time you laugh, I keep going. Um, so, so he had a ritual where every night he had a goodbye to technology and he spent the last couple of hours just present in whatever room he's in, okay? And so that's one thing. And then once a week, he had a 24-hour no technology day. And he, according to him, he said within eight days, he immediately noticed his attention and his focus going up. Then he went on this huge like study thing and it backed up all his anecdotal evidence and blah, blah, blah. I'll send you the link. So I'm just letting you know that as we begin to just step into this series, the way that you relate to technology and the way you interact with devices that tend to overstimulate you, which cause a lot of distraction in your brain, gets rewarded, blah, 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 blah it's probably a good time to go ahead and start having a DTR with your technology and setting very real black and white boundaries that you really don't negotiate with. The more you can resist technology and have a healthy relationship with it over here, I think it's 100% connected to how you're gonna experience things like stillness and solitude in the presence of God. Does that make sense? So that's an official challenge. Yep, you ready? The phone, you guys feel it? You feeling it? You seeing yourself having that DTR tonight? Oh, 8 p.m. over there. Okay, all right. Okay, Um, yeah, so everything I've said so far, last week we introduced this word cultivate, which means to create space for growth. That challenge, that technology challenge, that's all that really is. Let's create space for more of God. Okay, so for communion, I told you guys this is a vision series or a vision sermon and it's one of two. So if this feels a little incomplete, like there's a lot left on the table, there is. This was incomplete and there is a lot left on the table. We're gonna keep tapping into it. Stick with me. So over communion, we're gonna do it by ourselves. There's communion on the inside chair, every other row, if y'all wanna pass that down. We're doing something really simple today. We're gonna let the disciples teach us how to approach God in prayer. In Luke 11, chapter one, the disciples ask Jesus, or really, or they, they inquire of Jesus something really important. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. Okay? They make this wild assumption God knows more about prayer than they do. Let's be a church that makes the same assumption. Like, God, I don't just want to believe it because Josh said it. Like, if there is more to prayer, if there's another aspect of prayer that helps me feel very loved by you, that helps me feel like you're alive and active and in me and around me and moving on my behalf. God, if there's a version of prayer where I feel so seen, known, and loved by my Father, I want it. Anybody else want that? Does anyone else want a prayer life that you go, man, if I could describe my prayer life, alive. My prayer life is alive. I feel known by God. I believe God's real. Like, I'm actually so convinced of it because of my prayer life with just me and the Father. And let's spend the whole morning, let's just ask for it. Lord, if that's on the table, give me the patience. Give me the persistence. Give me the guts. Give me the confidence to keep showing up and exploring this way of praying. For I want to know you. I want to be known by you. And so over communion, this is your time to talk to your heavenly father for the sake of you and God's prayer life. And so for the next like five, six minutes, pray this prayer. Lord, have your way in our prayer life. 
then we'll come up and uh, conclude in worship. Love you guys.